Breen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. The documentary Stranger at the Gate premiered on September 14th on the New Yorker magazine website. It's a short film that takes us to Muncie, Indiana, where we meet U.S. Marine Richard Mack McKinney, who returns home from a tour filled with an all-consuming rage towards the people he had been fighting against. His hate turns into a plan, bomb the local mosque. But when he encounters the very community he wants to kill, something unexpected happens. Now, since its release, Stranger at the Gate has been generating buzz and recently won the grand prize for short films at the Indie Awards Film Festival. This week, my conversation with the filmmaker, Joshua Seftel. He joins me by phone from a hotel room in Boston, where he is about to do another community screening of the documentary, this time with the local NPR affiliate, WBUR. I want to start off by asking you about this story. What drew you to tell this story that is now a featured documentary on the New Yorker website? Sure. Well, it's, yeah, it's Stranger at the Gate is the new film. And it, it really goes back to the series we talked about last time, which is The Secret Life of Muslims. And I started that project, gosh, like eight or nine years ago. And I decided at that time that I really wanted to make a series that told stories about American Muslims. And the reason why is because as a Jew who grew up, you know, facing a lot of anti-Semitism as a boy in upstate New York, uh, I saw the kind of Islamophobia my Muslim friends were facing. And I thought, you know, as a filmmaker, maybe I can do something in some small way to help with that. So we had this idea for The Secret Life of Muslims, and we pitched it around. We tried to raise money, tried to get grants, and we failed. Then uh, the 2016 campaign for president started heating up, and Donald Trump's campaign was getting some, you know, momentum. And it was at that time that some of the funders who had said no to our idea came to us and said, you know, what's going on with that series you pitched? You know, it seems like we might need that kind of dialogue right now. And so it was almost directly a result of Trump's campaign that we um, were able to get, um, get that secret life of Muslims off the ground. And this new film is really the in some ways like the the 25th film in that series this is the new the newest film and the longest film and the story we really just discovered the story for this film through the process of doing that series oh how interesting so you found the story or the headlines i assume around this story during your process of looking for and 
uh, developing the secret life of Muslims. Exactly. That continuity, you know, it's interesting because when I first heard about Stranger at the Gate, it it brought back to memory, like to my memory, rather, uh, the headlines. It, very rough outlines. So for listeners saying, okay, what is Stranger at the Gate about and what is this headline you're talking about? Fill in some of the details. Sure. So the story is a U.S. Marine comes back from serving abroad for 25 years. He was serving abroad and he comes back to his hometown of Muncie, Indiana. He's trying to find his way there. He feels lost. He has PTSD. He's suffering And he decides that the best thing he can do for his country at this point is to bomb the local mosque so that he can commit mass murder. And he thinks that will help our country because the wars weren't going as well as he hoped they would. So he decides to go to the local mosque to do some reconnaissance. At this point, he's already built the bomb. And he comes face to face with, you know, the people he wants to kill. Uh, It's a group of Afghan refugees, some African-American converts to Islam, and some other folks. He comes face to face with them, and that's really the center of our film is that confrontation. So you knew and had heard about the story. How did you get to know Mac? I mean, watching this documentary, it's not that long, but what is very clear to me is that you got to know him because you started to ask him questions that caught me off guard. Can you tell me a little bit about the process for building that relationship? Sure. Yeah, I I knew him pretty well, and I still know him well. Um, Yeah, I I think it's really important for me as a filmmaker uh, to to get to know my subjects and to get to know kind of where their walls are, because everyone has sort of a script that they, you know, that they follow. And so if you ask them questions, they're going to go to their script and they're going to answer the same answer every time, you know, and it's always going to be the same. And it's sort of missing something usually. And so I knew his script pretty well. Mm. And I also knew the walls and what I wanted to break through. And so I had all these questions prepared um, that I knew might hopefully catch him off guard, might um, not in a bad way, but in a way of getting um, honest answers. And so that was what I was really trying to do in the process was to, you know, you get to know someone and you, you find you find the borders and then you gently push against them in the hope that you'll get to a greater truth. You asked one question in particular that caught me off guard. I want to play it for listeners. How did killing people change you? Never really told told it. Hold on a second, man. Uh. Joshua, 
when you're watching the documentary, and, and right now folks are just listening to us, but when they watch it, you're gonna you see a shift in his face. Yeah, that was one of those moments. Tell me about that moment. Well, it's a, it's incredibly uncomfortable, you know, when you're pushing these boundaries. It's scary for the interviewer and the interviewee, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen. Is is he going to like get up and leave? Is he going to yell at you? You just don't know, and that's the that's the scary part of it all. Um, but you ha- you know, I feel like you have to ask those questions. And I, I had a feeling it would result in an interesting answer. And the answer actually was, you can't, you can't see it, but what, what he does is he becomes incredibly flustered. And he doesn't answer the question. But instead, he, um, he takes a glass of water and starts drinking it. And then mm. he starts to rub his eyes. And he, he just doesn't know where to go. And, you know, that answer especially, you know, when you can see his expression on his face, that answer, which had no words in it, tells you so much. It tells you more than anything he could have said. And that's the, you know, that's the power of film. Um, you can't see it on the radio, but it, it's the power of film. It's, there was no answer, but there was a, an incredible answer that led us deep into his character. Yeah. Did it feel like a breakthrough moment for you? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it revealed his character. I think it showed how that he's still carrying this pain and he's still suffering. And I think it helped us to understand his state of mind. How, you know, how, how can someone be in a place where they think it's okay to go bomb a mosque or a church or shoot, you know, or shoot up a school? Like where, where does your mind have to be to for you to think that that's a good good idea. And, you know, I think that moment gave us a glimpse into how that could be possible with somebody. Yeah. It, you know, as I was watching it and listening and the way that you introduce us to Mac, the human being, not the headline, I couldn't help but thinking about some of the references about his background, his military training, the paradox of being, you know, filled with this patriotism and this um, sense of loyalty to family and this desire to protect and also being trained to view the enemy as the enemy, not worthy of living as a threat. And that sense of purpose, like those were elements that you introduce in different ways through different voices, including um, his daughter's voice. We moved to Muncie altogether when I was five, and he just was my dad from there on. We both called each other our road dogs because we would just go everywhere together and just hang out all the time when I was really young. He was amazing. Why was it important for you, Joshua, to have his daughter's voice in this story? I think this film, to me, is about our shared humanity. And the fact that, you know, a guy with PTSD who has murderous intentions and, you know, an African-American convert who... um, who admits that he, he hates white people because he's been so traumatized by 
his past and the racism he's faced. And then a, a group of Afghan refugees who've, you know, suffered and traveled across the world and seen, you know, terrible things, but made it to the U.S. and have built a life here. I, I like an American country music. I mean, just the, the quietness and the soothing. I mean, I don't know how many kind they are. There is just one that I listen. It's just the background, a country music. I listen to that. It kind of relaxes me. Uh, the country music. It seems to me it's coming from, from the heart, how you feel about the society or the community, wherever you live, and to express those feelings uh, in a very simple and straightforward way. I am a family physician here in Muncie, Indiana. The pictures of my children are in each room. I treat my patient as my family. So I tell my patient that I came by choice and I appreciate the refugee status that I came as a refugee. And then I tell them they are my family because if something happening to me, my family is far away. They will be coming to my rescue. All of these people are carrying trauma and it's something they all share. They actually have something in common with each other, even though they seem so far apart at the beginning of the film. And having Mac's daughter in there, I think it, I think it just brings a, a bit of humanity to someone who's, it's easy to look at him as a monster. You know, this guy wants to murder 200 people. That's his goal. And it's so easy to just see him as a monster. But until we can see him as a human being, um, I don't think we can see a way out of the problem. You know, we have to understand how people get to be this way in order to prevent it from happening. Yeah. You know, I, I want to get to that. I want to I want to speak to that problem that you're talking about. But before we do, I, I want to go back to the daughter for a moment. It, in the story, in the documentary, he explains that it was actually an encounter that his daughter had at school that was, in his mind, the trigger for this plot. There was this boy at my school, and his mom came to pick him up, and she was in this long dress with long sleeves and a full head covering that only showed her eyes, and I was really confused by that because I had never seen that before. And I went home that day and told my dad about it, and he flipped out. This little Muslim kid, future terrorist, sat across from my daughter. I blew up. At the end, I actually went into my room and just broke down and cried. I let these people get close to my family. I was just very confused and probably scared of why he was just freaking out over what this woman was wearing. And it just seemed so weird to me. Can you talk a little bit about why it was important to incorporate that? Yes. To me, that's possibly the most important moment in the film. And 
the reason I say that is that's the moment when he begins to, on some level, question his actions. Mm. And, you know, I've, I've, I've read that, you know, the people who are most likely to change the minds of someone who has intentions, like who wants to do a shooting or wants to commit a violent act, the people who are most likely to change that person's mind is, are the people that are closest to him. And, um, you know, his daughter, he loved his daughter. He was capable of love, you know, and he says, I needed her love. And the fact that she, he could tell she didn't approve of his take on Muslims uh, and she, she didn't approve of the kind of hate he was carrying in his heart. That affected him. And I think it was the beginning. It was like that first little chink in the armor, you know, it was that first little chip away at him maybe starting to question his own uh, his own actions, his own plans. And, you know, the daughter was, his daughter was key to the story. As a storyteller, as a documentary um, filmmaker committed to change, what are you hoping stories like this can do for us? Well, you know, you just said I'm committed to change. Um, are you? Is that's a and I, <laughs> I, do, I, I am. I am. And in fact, you know, I think this story is about our ability to change. You know, to me, that's what's at the heart of this story is that, you know, it's so easy to feel hopeless right now. You know, it feels like things are getting worse sometimes, that we're becoming mm-hmm. more polarized and we're talking less and you know, you hear people talk about like, maybe there's going to be civil war in the United States. And, mm-hmm. you know, this film and this story, I think, shows us that that change is possible, even in the most unlikely places. When you watch the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of this film, you cannot imagine what the outcome is going to be. You cannot even fathom it. And you know, I think the fact that um, change happens in the story in in the most, uh, you know, unlikely way, I think is a, a case study that proves that, you know, almost anything is possible. And I hope what people take from this film is a sense of hope. A sense that, you know, if we can find a way to talk to each other, if we can find a way to listen to each other, if we can find a way to forgive each other, that we have a blueprint for how we can get along. And, you know, this is a good time to start thinking about things like that because sometimes it feels like we're going in the wrong direction. When we return, my conversation with award-winning filmmaker Joshua Seftel continues. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Umbreen Khan. This week, my conversation with filmmaker Joshua Seftel. He's traveling around the country, hosting community screenings and attending movie festivals to promote his latest documentary, Stranger at the Gate. It's an unlikely story that takes us behind the headlines of what happens after an angry veteran, Richard McKinney, filled with pain and hate, decides to start planning a bomb attack targeting a local mosque. Now, I want to say, that did not happen. But what did surprised me. This is a story about many things that touches on family, faith, and community. Let's get back to the conversation. We started our conversation off talking about how the 2016 election cycle became, in some ways, this context that made the work that you're doing feel more relevant and critical at this time. Fast forward to 2022, what role do you see telling stories playing in addressing some of these issues that that we're talking about that are unfolding in our culture, in our communities, in our houses of worship, in our schools. I think that the power of film is that it's a way for people to meet each other, people who would ordinarily never maybe encounter or meet each other can meet each other by watching film and get to know people who are different than them that might they might never intersect with in their lives. And, you know, you can tell someone, someone what to think, but that doesn't really work. But if you meet someone, even if it's on a screen uh, and you're watching their life and getting to know them, I think that's one of the most powerful ways to shatter stereotypes. Um, and, you know, the, the opening scene of this film 
is you meet Bibi Barami, who is, uh, you know, a hijabi wearing Muslim woman who lives in Indiana. And she's on a treadmill talking about how much she loves American country music. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that is probably not the <laughs> average American non-Muslim person's idea of what a hijabi woman is or, or what she likes or what she does. And I love that. I love her as a character because right out of the gate, you know, people's stereotypes are, are starting to be broken up. And, and that's what I want to do. You know, I want to tell stories and introduce people to care to real world characters, real people who maybe don't fit the mold of what, of what we have in our minds about people, the ideas we have. I want to break those up and mix those up because I think once we do that, we start to start to find, find out what we have in common with each other. I don't want to give away the change that happens, but you you even contrast Mac. I mean, he, you know, the way that someone describes, I believe it's his, is it his wife or his girlfriend? I, I, I couldn't, I missed that. It's his wife. The way his wife even describes him as a quote-unquote jarhead. You know, she talks about him using even, you know, those labels that put people in boxes. Mm-hmm. And then we don't necessarily see the other sides uh, beyond that particular identity. One thing that I want to ask you about, which we haven't really gotten into, is mental health. You, you mentioned in this story, PTSD comes up, but it's not something that you guys dive into deeply. How important do you think the conversation needs to be when we're talking about relational challenges that that we're having in communities and between our quote-unquote tribes? What role do you see mental health playing? I think it should be a huge part of the conversation. I think that if Mac uh, had received perhaps better um, mental health care, uh, you know, he might not have gotten into a position where he was, you know, holding all these feelings inside and thinking about committing mass murder. Um, You know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a case study for why we need a really good mental health system so that these, these, uh, you know, horrible acts, which, which we see happening all the time around us these days, um, you know, can be, they can be prevented. Uh, and um, I, you know, this film doesn't get, like you said, it doesn't take a deep dive into that, but it shows how important um, mental health, uh, you know, mental health can be and how, if you don't have the right kind of care, it can, you can go down the wrong road and people can be hurt. So, um, I, you know, we, we intend to show the film, uh, to veterans groups and to have, you know, discussions around the film that touch Mm -hmm. upon PTSD for sure. That's going to be part of what we're, we're doing when we roll this film out. Yeah. (laughs) 
There's a conference happening this week in Pittsburgh in the wake of the massacre at the Tree of Life. Um, two individuals were inspired to create kind of a, a global conversation about confronting hate. And there was a study that was uh, discussed yesterday, and it, and it talked about the sources and places in our country where sometimes extremist ideas and radicalization happens. And it really jumped out at me that military service plays a role um, in the profiles that that are emerging about where political violence and other forms of violence are taking place. The the I, that part of one's identity seems to be having an influence. Yeah, I mean, the, well, there's this there's a scene in in our film where Mac talks about his service, and he talks about you know how he was having trouble coping, being responsible for other people's deaths, and you know while he was serving, while he was fighting. One time, I had a discussion with a higher ranking person about coping. He looked at me straight in the eye. It says, Mac, you're on the range. You're shooting at a paper target. As long as you can look at them as anything but human, you won't have any problems. I said, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I did. You know, you bring that back to the United States when you're not serving anymore. And how do you flip the switch to a more, you know, a more humane, a more healthy way of viewing the world? And um, I'm not sure it's that easy to do. And in his case, he couldn't. And that's why he wanted to, in my mind, that's why he wanted to, you know, commit mass murder. Hmm. Purpose. Mission. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- those ideas, I say purpose and mission, n- not casually. I mean, there. I think that in the mix of the uncertainty that a lot of people are feeling, a lot of the anxiety that people have about the, the future, whether you're talking about the environment, whether you're talking about political life, whether you're talking about the economy, um, there is this growing pervasive sense of uncertainty and an anxiety that's coming with that. And the answer to certainty is sometimes mission and purpose. And finding a threat. And at least from where I sit and the stories that I hear, one thing that I'm increasingly struck by is how purpose and mission can be distorted right. in in our country and in our community, um, whether you're thinking globally or whether you're thinking locally, you know, like w- what and how do you think of yourself and your mission and your purpose? When you were sitting with Mac... Did you sense that his purpose or mission have shifted? Absolutely. 180 degrees. Um, You know, he is someone who has a lot of passion. (laughs) And he, you know, at one time poured all of that into this idea that he was going to kill a bunch of innocent people. He, He still has that, that, like that intensity and that passion, but now he's bringing it to something that's much healthier. Mm. In terms of this film and, and its purpose, I feel like, you know, I watch a lot of documentaries and 
you know, a lot of them present a social problem. You know, let's say, for example, you watch a film about the environment or about global warming. And when you're, when you're done watching it, it's so easy to feel like, um, okay, what can I do? Like recycle, stop using plastic bottles. Like, is that going to stop global warming? You know, it's, it's, it's overwhelming because it's easy to feel powerless. I feel like with this story, at least for me, there's, there's a call to action and that call to action is actually something we can all do. This film is saying, just be kind, welcome the stranger, be kind to them, be open, listen, smile. And that might sound cliche, you know, that might sound like very simplistic, but I think when you watch this film, it's sort of unassailable, you know, it's hard to argue with that idea that, mm. you know, it's that simple that if we all do that more, with people that maybe we don't like or we don't think we understand very well or that we strongly disagree with. If we, if we all did that a little bit more, stayed open, stayed kind, I just think really good things can happen. Yeah. I, uh, I tend to agree with you on that one. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. As we return to my conversation with award-winning filmmaker Joshua Seftel, our attention shifts now from Seftel's work to his motivation and his own spiritual journey. I read that you were once on a path to becoming a doctor. <laughs> what happened that changed your trajectory? So, yeah, that's true. I was pre-med. I actually did all the coursework in undergraduate school. I took like a gazillion science classes um, and I was going to be a doctor. I was going to join um, Doctors Without Borders. I was going to travel the world and help the, the neediest people across the globe. That was my plan. And then after I graduated from college, I decided to take it a year off before medical school. And it was then that someone asked me if I would be interested in going to Romania to make a documentary about the abandoned children of Romania. And this was, this was right after um, communism had fallen. It was 1990. And there were all these children in Romania who had been abandoned by their parents because the, the governmental systems that was set up encouraged people to have a lot of kids, but there was no social network to um, take care of their kids, especially if the kids had disabilities. And so there were institutions across Romania that were filled with disabled children and no one knew how to care for them and there were no resources. And so I went to Romania and I lived in the orphanages for about a month and slept in there and filmed the conditions. And I made a documentary about it that was on public television. And that film, when it was broadcast, it led to the American adoption of thousands of Romanian children. Mm -hmm. 
that was the sort of the moment, this epiphany, you know, I had, which was, wow, you know, filmmaking can be really powerful if you um, if you can tell the right stories and tell them in the right way. And that was sort of the beginning of my my parents' crushing disappointment that I didn't become a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I just kept going with filmmaking and, um, you know, I, I would say I'm, I'm motivated by guilt in a way, you know. Guilt? What guilt is there? Well, what, what, where, what are we, where's the well? What's the well that's, uh, that that's coming from? The fact that, every, you know, the fact that I didn't become a doctor and that I, I'm not mm-hmm. in India right now helping people, you know. So I think about that all the time and I think, well, I, I have to somehow do this in my film work. I have to mm-hmm. find a way to help people. And so I try to pick um, topics and stories to tell that I think will help even in some small way as much as possible to make up for the fact that I I didn't join doctors without borders. And, (laughs) and so that's that I'm motivated by guilt, but it tends to work for me. It's a powerful force, that thing called guilt. Um, (laughs) And, and and so is kindness. And I hear, I hear those both kind of those, those emotions that run deep in you, um, sense of responsibility and obligation in the sight and in the presence of suffering. For sure. Where does your faith fit into that? You know, I have faith in humanity. I believe that we all share something, you know, we're not the same, but we, we have some overlap. We have this, you know, you can call it a common humanity. And I, I feel like that's what this film is about for sure. You know, you have, you have these characters who are so different from each other. You know, you have a white, um, you know, white veteran who's from the Midwest. You have an Afghan refugee who escaped from Afghanistan through Pakistan and made it to the U.S. Um, and is like living in the Midwest and totally transplanted in a new culture. You have an African American who has faced lots of racism and converts to Islam. And, you know, these, these groups of people all intersect in this film and they all find something that they, they share with each other they find a way to connect in a deep way. And I just believe that if we can tap into that, if we can tap into this, this, you know, thing we all have within us, this, this common humanity, um, that that's, that's a very powerful force. I know that you are on the festival circuit. There is a growing amount of attention for Stranger at the Gate. You're winning some prizes and you are getting attention. You have events and live screenings. Um, what's what's on the horizon? Well, yes, we're, we're really busy with the, with the events and sharing the film with the world. Uh, it's really exciting after working on something for, for many, many months to get to share it and see people's reactions. Um, one of the things that is happening is that there's been an interest in adapting this uh, documentary into a narrative, into like a movie. And we're in talks about that. So that that could happen down the road. We'll see. Uh, but I, 
you know, I plan to continue to tell tell stories like this one, you know, stories that I think defy expectations, stories that shatter stereotypes, stories that maybe present characters that we haven't seen enough in movies and, and documentaries. And that's what, that's what excites me. That's what, um, what interests me. And so I love finding those stories and then sharing them with the world to hopefully, you know, maybe open people's minds, maybe change the way they think a little bit, maybe bring someone new in, into their life that they've never met before through the film and um, broaden horizons. For me as a filmmaker, uh, my horizons are constantly being broadened. So I'm not coming from a place of condescension at all. I'm, I'm on a journey myself where I'm constantly learning and growing and trying to, you know, find new stories, meet new people, learn new things, and then hopefully share that with um, a broader audience. Hmm. What did you learn about yourself doing this project? Well, I think I learned that I was kind of depressed and hopeless you know after you know after the pandemic and you know after um watching so much division in in our world and feeling like you know how can things get better they seem like they're getting worse and you know part of that is perception um from you know maybe consuming too much too much media (laughs) but it's i just don't think it's true anymore you know i i I feel like this story has certainly opened my eyes to what's possible you know to this idea that maybe we can find a way to get along and I don't want to give away the end of the movie, but maybe we already have. I, I don't think we have. We're not. Gonna, we're not going to give it away. We're not going to give it away. Yeah, but you know, when you watch this film, I hope that people get a sense of hopefulness back in them if they've lost it. Um, that's that's what sort of happened for me, and um, I want to share that. Thank you for being honest. Sure. My pleasure. I say that because you're out there, you're promoting this, you're a public voice, you're a public content creator, a creative. And I imagine there's also pressure for you to be spinning the positive. I know a lot of people who feel that way. You know, a lot of my friends, I think, feel that way too, have been feeling hopeless and worried. Um, It's easy to feel that way right now. We need some other narratives, real true narratives that maybe help to counter some of those feelings so we can find a blueprint that works better than reading and talking about all the division that we see around us. Do you have any rituals or practices that you've started to kind of keep that that inspiration? Well, I've I've been meditating for a while and... um, you know, uh, 
that's very helpful uh, in terms of religion. It's not a big part of my life, but um, my daughter, who's six, informed us recently that she um, wants to start learning more about about Judaism. Wow! And um, and this was we were my wife and I were shocked because we'd never talk about it, and um, we were just both so surprised. But we said okay, so we actually just joined. Um, a synagogue a few weeks ago and we're going to start going and bringing her there and help her realize her dream. Oh, she's six right now. So her dream is to become a Jewish ballerina. Wow. And um, we're going to help her. We're going to help her realize her dream. She's also taking ballet lessons. So together combining that with going to um, synagogue, maybe her dream will come true. We'll see. That's exciting. I have to say, you're not the first person to share that kind of decision. I have good friends who have a child who they no longer practice the faith tradition they grew up with. And um, their child in talking with relatives and grandparents, um, and just being curious decided that it was something that was more important to, to them. And the parents have made this decision to join an organized religious institution and community, and they have some trepidation about it. But they're also excited to do this for their child. So um, thank you for sharing that. You know, there's that expression that you think you're the only one going through something until you find out everyone's going through it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to let my friends know they're not alone, that that there are, in fact, other parents (laughs) making decisions like this. Yep. It's I'm excited about it. Do you feel like it's gonna it's an opportunity for you to rediscover? Yes. It's you know, I was raised Jewish. My family brought me to a synagogue and then over time I lost interest in it and didn't really have time for it. And um it's been, you know, a few decades since then. And the idea of circling back and maybe coming at it with through a new lens and seeing what I can find of value in it, in the experience that I can apply to my life going forward and to my family's life is is exciting because it's it's an echo of the past you know it's I grew up with it and I'm I'm really curious to see how I will view it now as mm. an older person um, and. And how how I'll see it through my child as well. Sounds like in a journey that um, is one that is likely to be filled with lots of moments um, for both adventure and perhaps even reflection. For sure. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to. And maybe that's a story for an upcoming episode uh, on, on kids who bring their parents um, back to the quote-unquote fold. Joshua, this has been a pleasure talking with you. 
Thank you so much for making time to talk with us about your latest project, uh, Stranger at the Gate. If people want to watch it sitting in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or Holland, Michigan, or uh, on on the Big Island, how can they how can they get to it if they can't get to a screening? Sure, uh, it's available on YouTube, so you can go to the New Yorker magazine channel on YouTube. And you'll find Stranger at the Gate there. It's also on the New Yorker website, newyorker.com. You can watch it there as well. So it's available for free in both places. And I hope people can can check it out. I think you will find it to be compelling and, I hope, inspiring. I agree with you. We will make sure to include a link to that in this week's episode show notes. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me on Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I hope we have you back. Thanks, Ambrina. It was fun. Joshua Seftel began his career in documentaries at age 22, receiving an Emmy nomination for his first film, Lost and Found, the story of Romania's forgotten children. Over his career, he's produced several projects for television, the big screen, as well as radio. And that includes a reality series, two seasons of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, as well as episodes for one of my favorites, This American Life. Joshua Seftel is the founding director of Smarty Pants, a production company based in Brooklyn, New York, where he lives with his family. That's all for this week's show. For links and articles that dive into the backstory of Stranger at the Gate, visit this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can sign up for our newsletter, explore the archives, and most exciting, you can subscribe to the podcast and listen whenever you want. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there listening, I invite you to leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and myself. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices and it is 100% listener supported. We rely on your generous support to bring you this show. And we love your feedback. If you have thoughts or an idea for an upcoming show, drop us a note at amber at interfaithradio.org. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.